guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Have you, uh, either of you, in recent years, read Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arm? <clears throat> Hmm. Not recently, no. Just, it's, you know, I think it's a profound work in the Hemingway canon um, on the topic we're developing. Mm-hmm. I, mm. it, at least according to my memory, I haven't read it in several years. According to my memory, it's about a couple mm. falls profoundly in, in love in this heightened sense where each completes the other on some level. But circumstances... Uh, between them and in the world uh, uh, evolve and change or devolve. Things get more complicated. Um, mm. A distance opens up between them. Um, it, they get to know one another. Uh, it, it's still love, but it's complicated love. But their vocabulary, their language that they share is unable to accommodate these changes. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're only able to communicate in the poetics, if you will, of the first flush of love. Right. Um, mm. Even as they grow apart and geopolitical realities crop up and, and you know, mm. war intensifies and um, the mm. male protagonist um, goes AWOL. They move to Switzerland and eventually, of course, is it Lady Cat? Is it, no, is it Catherine? I'm forgetting the name of the female character. Mm. She dies in Switzerland. Mm. But their language is never able to... Um, evolve past that uh when you were saying farewell to arms i was clocking actually on for whom the bell tolls and then this is a segue i apologize and then i locked on that famous uh repeated phrase in for whom the bell tolls which is the earth moved Hmm. yeah and um you know, this is this is in the act of love. And then, you know, there's this, you know, they're in the act of love. And I think there's some, you know, fragmentary 
description. And then there's the period. And then there's the phrase, the earth moved. And the nature of that movement of the earth is also consonant with, you know, not a dram of my blood that was not Mm. trembling, uh, the troubling Mm. the oak trees and the the Mm. idea of the wind in the field of candles. Also, Mm. this trembling phenomena. I apologize for segueing, Andrew, because your analysis is so much more interesting, the relationship of the evolution of love to language and one's capacity to for language to change in order to accommodate expanded or altered definitions of the nature of love. Yeah, mm. it's it's an interesting phenomenon and not one that I've read a lot about. I feel it is present in A Farewell to Arms. I'd like to um, talk a little um, in general, um, unless um, there are reservations about the wound of love. I think... Uh, mm. Mm. I think that's a concept that feels like it's uh, appearing on the horizon right now. The consequences of loving, the wound of love, of losing love, Hmm. or the wound of love is something that um, is incurred as a result of the uh, the shift from the ideal to the real, as we've been um, discussing it. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, In either either case, you kind of lose the person. Uh, In one case, they're still there. In the other case, they're gone. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Is this an appropriate segue to the Charles Bukowski poem? Because it is about a wound. Mm. I mean, I think Bukowski potentially is a kind of antidote, certainly to that kind of rap of the idealization of of, um, romantic liaisons. Well, I, I see a lot of romanticism in him, actually. And I, as I we listened to this poem before, and I, I remember it being pretty darn romantic. But let's listen to it again and see what we think this time. Yeah, just so everyone knows, um, this poem entitled The Shower comes from a book published, I believe it was in 1971 by Charles Bukowski, Black Sparrow Press. Mm-hmm. And the name of the work is the name of the book is Mockingbird Wish Me Luck, which is sort of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe the shower, the poem we're about to listen to, is the uh, the final poem, or maybe the penultimate poem in the poem. Oh. The shower. We like to shower afterwards. I like the water hotter than she, and her face is always soft and peaceful. And she'll wash me first, spread the soap over my balls, lift the balls, squeeze them, then wash the cock. Hey, this thing is still hard. (laughs) Then get all the hair down there, the belly, the back, the neck, the leg. I grin, 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 and then I wash her. Another kiss, and she gets out first, toweling, sometimes singing while I stay in. Turn the water on hotter, feeling the good time to love's miracle. Linda, you brought it to me. Sorry. When you take it away. Slowly and easily. Make it as if I were dying in my sleep instead of in my life. Amen. 
see? I'm getting this one. Sentimental. Shit. Sorry. <laughs> That's the one I split with. Five years. It's not a very good reading. Hmm. There it is, Carl Kukowski. Yeah, that's an excerpt from the poem. The poem is a little bit longer than that. Maybe um, we heard about two-thirds of it. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, it sounded like he was doing some parenthetical talk at a couple, at two point at the end there, and, and sort of, yeah. Hmm. And also, I guess he's choking back an emotion. Yeah, there's some fears there. He cries. I think it's a striking audio file because we encounter love in an idealized form. He refers to the miracle of love. And then there's this, this, this very jarring shift to, mm-hmm. to, to love loss. Mm-hmm. Now, let's pause for a second because as I was listening for the word love, I didn't hear the word love. I heard the word it. I heard him say, you bring it to me. Linda, you bring it to me. And I guess the antecedent of the pronoun it might be love. Bring it to me. I believe uh, basking in love's miracle. There's a phrase, aye, aye. Mm. There's a phrase along those lines. Um, I, I think the antecedent of it is love's miracle, but I may, I may stand corrected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Thank you for clarifying that. And then he says, I mean, to me, it is in the uh, tradition of uh, the Provencal, the romantic uh, troubadours, uh, because, you know, he's idealizing the beloved, talking about the miracle of love and then talking about how he was how he was killed. He died when when love left him. Yeah, so that, that those are like in the tradition, you know, because there's a kind of sexual frankness to it, nakedness, to it, it, it strikes us as kind of modern and maybe secular. But mm. it, I think those uh, underpinnings of the idealization are still there, to my mind. Definitely. Mm. Something of a, a, a almost an expulsion from Eden. Um, mm. Nakedness of Adam and Eve. Uh, Oh, interesting. By no means something to be ashamed of, but it's uh, there's pretty much this movement out of the bath, out Eden of the heart, to this new world of uh, absence and pain. Yeah, come to think of it, you know, you you leave a shower and you're in this sort of watery world of water, and then you you, you're out of it and you're back in the dry land, and it's kind of a metaphor for like. The shower of love is falling on you, and suddenly it isn't anymore, and you're in the dry land of no love. I, I think maybe that's why the poem is kind of resonant or strikes one as as right. You know, it feels right. I think because that unspoken metaphor maybe works. It's interesting too how the poem becomes a prayer of sorts. Yeah, it's uh, how the poem concludes with uh, "Amen." transforms the poem into something of a prayer it's interesting mm. you know yeah, uh, that's interesting well we, we but that wasn't the last word um we're not getting the whole of the poem entitled I, the shower right that is the last word of the poem oh okay. oh 
Yeah, oh, so we're oh, so we're getting the tail end of the shower. Yeah, you, we get the beginning and the end of the shower, and then he um, inserts some um, poetic patter after hmm. he cries, and then at the very end where he apologizes for getting sentimental. Oh, that's not part of the poem. Not part of the poem. The poem ends with the, yeah. the amen. Oh, okay, yeah. Interesting. Because I thought that sentimental line was part of the was part of the poem. Felt like part of the poem. I took this course in grad school with a, a fantastic professor by the name of uh, Nick Constance, who ended up leaving Harvard after getting tenure and becoming a monk on Mount Athos, huh. a holy mountain in Greece. He grew his beard long and went by the name Father Maximus. <laughs> um, really fascinating story, fascinating guy. Huh. But he taught this course called um, Eros Crucified. Symposium on Christian Desire. He was um, a scholar of Orthodox Christianity with a focus on patristic literature, Gregory of Nyssa um, and others. What, what, what is patristic? These are the church fathers. The church fathers, precisely. Yeah. Um, Who are what? What are the church fathers? Early early, er, early Eastern doctors and saints of the church wrote in the Greek language. Like Gregory of Nyssa, for example, um, um, St. Anthony, Brother Ma Maximus the Confessor, who Nick Constance was named after. At any rate, one, um, one trope that came up in this class a lot is the relationship between being wounded by earthly love, first step in one's theological awakening to something larger. Hmm. The wound of love, of earthly love, creating um, an awareness. Uh, maybe a, a feeling of lack, huh. um, a space that God then mm. fills on some level. Mm. Man, that happened to me. I mean, I know it'll be difficult for you to imagine, <laughs> but there was a, a woman whom I moved to San Francisco with from the East Coast. We moved to San Francisco to, you know, like Adam and Eve, start the world again. So we moved there and, um, you know, spread our wings and, you know, found the wind. I mean, it, we uh, lasted about, sadly, about six or eight months in San mm -hmm. Francisco before she uh, kicked me to the curb. Mm. And I don't know what the specific configurations of that of that relationship were, but man, when she pulled out, she took part of me with her, and it left a, a hole in me that I had a really difficult time negotiating, looking over the side of, getting to the bottom of, da 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 da. And what it did is it left me in a in a state of extreme disappointment, hmm. um, a sense of of world weariness, of hmm. I I would say emptiness, a sort of void. And it and it and it primed me. I mean, I was already fairly. Um, uh, rough, not roughed up is the wrong word, but I was already activated in many ways due to the circumstances of my upbringing, uh, you know, that involved the um, Sat Mat Yoga of the Sound Current. And then, you know, I was a um, 
had joined different uh, Gurdjieff-Fuspensky work groups. So I was kind of already a little bit primed. But it was only out of that love affair that then and out of the, it almost seemed like openness, but actually it was emptiness and really a sense of um, vacuity, of vacuum, of longing, you know, that allowed me to be receptive to, you know, this friend of mine whom I met in the San Francisco Public Library in the poetry section, you know, I was wearing this East Baltimore jacket and he had gone to St. John's, so he's a little familiar with Baltimore, so we struck up a conversation and then he introduced me to yoga and then he introduced me to uh, Sogel six months later blew my mind and allowed me to enter the path on which, you know, I've been the last, um, you know, plus or minus 30 years. Thank you for sharing that story. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the theologian, the Russian theologian, Pavel Florensky, who died in a gulag up in Siberia, uh, he wrote that the, the, the wound of love, whether it's inflicted by a lover, in your case, or someone with whom we are very close with, in the case of Delia, that uh, we will take those parts to, uh, he said, to Judgment Day. That uh, <laughs> we learn mm. to negotiate them, we learn to do something with them, maybe even um, we end up appreciating them on some level as a gift in part. But the pain once incurred, the wound once opened, will remain that way. And th- there's this, uh, there's this wonderful quotation that I wanted to read briefly. It's very short, and it's from a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in Bonhoeffer, mm. um, fascinating figure, uh, spent some time in New York City studying at Union Theological Seminary. Um, became quite enamored with Black Charismatic Christianity. Returned to Germany. Uh, was working as a priest and as a theologian. Um, became active in the resistance movement and played no small role in running messages leading up to the uh, attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. He was eventually outed. He's reported on. He was arrested by the SS, uh, imprisoned with the expectation of being sent to a concentration camp, but ended up being executed at the prison or outside of the prison, um, just uh, weeks or if not days before the fall of Berlin, tragically. But he did write these letters from prison to his beloved, as Lutherans, of course, can date and marry. And these letters were later published as the Letters and Papers from Prison by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. Mentioned that the letter that I'm about to read from, he wrote, at a time when he knew he would die or thought he would die in the concentration camp. So he's very much speaking from inside the heart of his own death. Are you ready for the quotation? Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> Nothing can make up for the absence of someone whom we love. And it would be wrong to try to find a substitute. We must simply hold out and see it through. That sounds very hard at first. But at the same time, It is a great consolation for the gap, as long as it remains unfilled, preserves the bonds between us. It is nonsense to say that God fills the gap 
He doesn't fill it, but on the contrary, he keeps it empty and so helps us to keep alive our former communion with each other, even at the cost of pain. I think it's a very powerful quotation um, and uh, has everything to do with the wound of love and how that, you know, that continues with us, that it's not it's not something that scar tissue is necessarily going to cover over and conceal. The pain is, um, I mean, it's there on some level, has a long half-life. I mean, it's very striking as a theologian. You know, it's a daring statement to make, I think, for a Protestant theologian to say that, you know, God can't solve all your problems. It strikes me hearing it. And, and you know, just a realistic uh, statement, because, you know, the fact is God, whether God exists or not, God, in a way, has limitations for us humans. Nobody's allowed to admit it, but this guy is, is brave enough to, to, to say it. And, and maybe I connected in my mind to a guy who would, who would fight Hitler because there's a danger in religious life to, to ignore the world and to say, well, you know, my salvation, particularly in Christianity, my salvation is in the other world. My salvation is after death. I'm going to, uh, be a faithful servant of God, and uh, that's it. You don't need to deal with the world. But this guy is saying the world is real. He's he's accepting. He's you know he's saying something to me theologically. The world is real, and God is real, and each has its own realm. And in this world, we have to fight the Hitlers. We can't just rely on some kind of abstract faith to pull us through. And we can't rely on abstract faith to make everything inside of our psyche better. That's how I hear it. You know, he was he was pretty influenced by uh, Christian pragmatism when he was in New York City at Union Theological Seminary, precisely uh, the sort of focus that you're talking about, Sparrow, less abstractly theological and more more thinking about the kingdom of heaven on earth. Yeah, he used that as the theological ground to justify his own involvement in a murderous plot. Right. Challenge for him, even though he saw Hitler, of course, as evil incarnate, take a life, even an evil life, um, was something that initially he resisted. Oh, it reminds me a little bit of a work that you sometimes have recourse to, Sparrow, called the Bhagavad Gita. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Of Krishna and, and... Well, I mean, isn't the crux of it the simultaneous acknowledgement that the mortal existence as we know it is illusory? And the question I thought that was presented to Arjuna is him saying, oh, I don't want to kill people. You know, this is all just a a dream, why should I go about killing people? And then Krishna gives him the rationale for why he should still engage. Mm-hmm. Is that about right, Sparrow? I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. I think mm-hmm. you pretty much uh, got it. There is a point in the Bhagavad Gita that I think about a lot where Krishna says, uh, inaction is impossible in this world. We're always taking action. Breathing is an action. You can't live in the world without action. And I think it's part of his 
kind of rap that he's giving Arjuna that, I mean, Arjuna, as I recall, Arjuna is not concerned about or not thinking about the illusionality of the world. He's more thinking about, he's looking across the battlefield at all his cousins that he has to kill. And he's just thinking, I don't want to do it. I, I don't, I don't remember it as being a, a, a religious or theological objection, more just a, a rational, logical objection, maybe a desire not to, not to do evil. Mm. And Krishna, I think, says what I was just saying before, that uh, if you offer your actions to Krishna, if you offer your actions to God, then then the actions, in a sense, are, have no consequences. They have no karma. You escape mm-hmm. karma. Kind of self-liberated. Yeah. You're... You're escaping the the cycle of karma, you could say, Mm. through love. Hmm. Interesting. If you accept bhakti, the devotion to God as a form of love. Yeah. Well, I mean, circling back to the Lutheran-German patriot, I mean, um, that aspect of him writing from the standpoint of knowing that he will die is for me reminiscent of Martin Luther King. And this understanding I came through via Michael Dyson's uh, book on his on his death. I, I think the book's called April 4th, 1968. And it's a rhetorical phrase where somebody is writing looking past their own death, knowing that their own death is approaching, and then looking past it, um, such as Martin Luther King engages in his, I have, I've stood on the mountaintop, and I've seen, what? What's the phrase? I thought it's, I've been to the mountaintop. That's my memory, yeah. but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that, you know, was just prior to his assassination. And the rhetorical um, trope that that constitutes is called automortology. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and it in part is engaged in a self-projection of how an individual would like to be seen after this Hmm. event that they're anticipating called death. Hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the whole last words. I think I read a book that was entirely everyone's last words of all famous people. There was kind of a cult of it, and particularly in the 19th century, where everyone would gather around the deathbed of, you know, usually some beloved patriarchal figure and wait for their last words. I mean, I think everyone knows a few of, you know, the Thoreau's famous last words were moose Indian. Mm. But I read a book about Thoreau recently, and uh, apparently there's different versions of his last words. And, uh, And supposedly Oscar Wilde said, Either these drapes have to go or I will. Something like that. Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, these this wallpaper is awful, you know, or <laughs> some phrase like that. And then one of us has to go. Some of them, there's like different. 
versions of. But this idea of gathering around waiting for the last words of a person that kind of, and many of them I think are, you know, somewhat sentimental, cliched or something, grandiose. I think Gandhi, you know, I think he's being assassinated and he turns to the guy who's killing him and says, I forgive you, I believe. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of Harry Smith, the American expatriate in Paris, a member of the Ulipo school, who has a kind of thought experiment which goes something like contemplate or seek to discover that which compelled you as a baby or, you know, referring back to Erickson, you know, in that toddler stage, what was it that compelled you to first speak? In other words, not last huh. words, but your that idea of what 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 was it that compelled you to first move into that state of putting a word together into the world to hmm. bridge the gap between, I guess, yourself and another human being, right? Hmm. And that I think hmm. that Harry Smith's what he was positing is that you know that's a good thing to remember. And perhaps that's a good thing to try to write from, uh -huh. you know, that it somehow is original to the shape of all your words, like hmm. ripples, uh, you know, when you throw a stone in a pond. You, in hmm. a sense, you're sort of saying that that word over and over again your whole life, that first word of yours, it sounds like you say. Or the, yeah, that first impetus behind the word, the force of which is carried through a lifetime. But you don't remember yours, right, Sam? I mean, that's you're like, you know, nine months old. I mean, it's hard to remember. It's interesting, though, that in this theory of language, language urges to fill some emptiness or bridge some distance that maybe isn't felt um, so acutely initially because of... Um, the attachment of the fetus to the to the womb, or in terms of that that foundational connection to one's caregivers, maybe one wound of love is when the first distances begin to open, when the uh, the infant realizes at the mirror stage that it is from the mother's body, from the body of the caregivers. That that's you know from a Freudian perspective, that that moment is a great crisis. Hmm. That that um, maybe triggers this need. To, uh, to communicate, to, to, to fill the space with words. Uh, to quote John Ashbery from a later poem, how do you get this way, unable to stop communicating? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess what I'm feeling is when you evoke that kind of placentian afterglow of being <laughs> that baby... And having had, you know, nine months of sort of symbiosis with the mom, one has this experience, then you're born, you're separated, but that separation is still not um, manifest so much because you're still near the mother and you're still in that cognitive understanding that it's all connected. 
And then at a certain point, and maybe it is around nine months or ten months, I forget when you start talking, you know, when we start prattling on like I am now. Um, <laughs> what compels one to first speak is this is a crisis because it is the acknowledgement that we need words at all, that we mm. need words in order to that we become aware that mm. there is a separation and therefore we seek ways in which to bridge that gap. My experience with my daughter, you know, who just turned 30, so it's a little uh, distant, my recollection, is that uh, it's a continual process, that there isn't a break, really. That before she was born, we were very conscious of her because she was always getting breached. She was always turning upside down. She did it a few times, I think. And the midwife explained to my wife how to like lay at a certain angle so that the baby would turn right side up again, which worked. But then she, Sylvia was born with the umbilical cord around her neck and she was a little bit gray, not quite blue. Holy cow. Yeah. I think because she was always being you know, spinning around. She had spun around a few times in there. So, you know, in the womb, the baby is is moving, you know, is making itself known, kicking the mother. And then it's born, and uh, long before it speaks, uh, it's pointing. And long before it's pointing, it's babbling. I think, I, I don't know at what point you count language emerging, mm. But it seems to me that it begins as kind of play in a way that they hear that the the baby hears us making these noises that are speech. And and maybe even if it didn't hear us, maybe if it just heard birds or heard trucks rumbling, it would start making these sounds, just expelling sound for whatever reason, mm. not even mm. thought, not even consciously, perhaps just as a kind of the way you play uh, a flute. If you find a flute, you pick it up and play it a little bit. Hmm. So it, and then gradually, it, it, there is a point, you know, where the, where the child looks frustrated and is trying to say something like, you know, I want that stuffed uh, anteater over there, you know, I want that stuffed animal, give it to me. And, uh, you know, it'll start saying something like, buh, and that stands in for give me that thing. I mm. mean, that maybe is maybe what you're talking about, the very beginning of maybe the, is that what the beginning of language? I don't know. You know I mean, to me, it's a kind of continual process. Yeah. And I guess, you know, one thing is the distinction between language as we know it, you know as speech or as, you know, having uh, what we call meaning. But communication, as you pointed out, relative to pointing, I guess communication is something that is instantaneous, you know, within a normal delivery and normal birth. Mm. The, the child is... Um, you know, communicating is born 
communicating, you know, through the eyes, through the gaze. My mom says, you know, I was born by cesarean section. Mm. And um, so out I came. And then mom says they brought me to her. And I was lying down, you know, on her shoulder with my head on her shoulder. And she says that I took my hand, my right hand, maybe, I don't know, which is, yeah. And I patted her. I like gave her a few pats, like, you know, good job or, you know, I don't know how you can interpret it. But I think that that just like tap, tapping or patting was a form of communication and maybe all the communication that we've ever had is just um, comforting, you know? That you and your mother or that everyone has? Yeah, I don't know. I was talking a little bit too uh, too broadly. Mm-hmm. But I do feel part of communication is comforting, is communion, is um, acknowledging the precariousness of this and and miraculousness of this whole arrangement you know of having (laughs) did i die it always seems like very meaningful at which point he disappears just as he's discussing the precarious attempts to communicate between people he poignantly dissolves into nothingness. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.